welcome to The Theology Mill, brought to you by Whitfinstock Publishers. I'm your host, Zach Mickle. In this podcast, we interview some of the leading authors in theology, biblical studies, philosophy, and more. Many of the folks we talk with on the show are also authors with us at Whitfinstock, where we have the honor of putting into print a broad swath of work which nourishes the academy and the church. On this episode, I interview Dr. Matthew Levering. Dr. Levering holds the James N. Jr. and Mary D. Perry Chair of Theology at Mundelein Seminary and is the author of over 30 books, including his 2019 publication, The Achievement of Hans Urs von Balthasar, an introduction to his trilogy. In our conversation, Levering and I discuss Hans Urs von Balthasar, especially as his work relates to Thomism, liberal Catholicism, Ignatian spirituality, modern German philosophy, and much more. So with that, friends, let's jump on over to the interview. Let's start with what impresses you the most about Hans Urs von Balthasar as a theologian. Well, that's a, that's a tough question, but I'm most impressed by his, the way that he brings in um, so many, so many of the greatest sources of our faith, but also, also just sort of has a literary verve. You know, it's really quite amazing to, to read him. He's, um, you know, he's drawing upon such a wide range of, of great sources, especially sources, um, you know, prior to, um, prior to the, you know, from the first uh, 14 or 15 centuries of, our, of the church's existence, but then also a lot of mystical theologians. Um, and then he also draws upon poets and, and so on. He, he just has, he has an amazing range really, and, and a literary verve and a, just a deep commitment to following Jesus and a deep love for um, Jesus. And I love his sense of a mission, you know, where we share, Christ, each Christian has a particular mission um, that shares in Jesus's fundamental mission of um, self-sacrificial uh, love. So there's a lot of a lot of incredible things I find in, in Balazar. And we'll, I know we'll talk about those. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So on the other side, because um, I know you said that you don't agree with everything uh, about von Balthasar. So what's maybe one critique you might make of his project? Well, I think that his understanding of um, Christ's cross and of the Trinity is um, kind of too too much. I, I know that he, he intends a lot of his language to be... Um, metaphorical to sort of awakening us you know not he doesn't intend it i don't think to be analogical but but on the other hand um for example on the cross he when he speaks about the cross he has a very strong substitution doctrine where jesus endures the wrath of the father in a profound way because jesus really takes on sin in an incredibly profound way and so the, the father pours out his wrath upon sin upon the son because the the son um jesus christ um 
is filled with the what Balzar calls the effigies of, of sin. And so the son is filled with all sin and the father pours out his wrath. To me, this is unacceptable. This is not um, at all um, a Catholic understanding of, of the cross. You know, this is, Balzar needed to have followed more of the satisfaction doctrine, but he didn't, he didn't fully understand the depth of um, the satisfaction doctrine, which is different from substitution doctrine. Uh, he didn't fully understand the depth of it, I don't think, um, at least in his, when he writes about Aquinas's version of an Anselm, he understands partly, but he doesn't understand, in my view, fully. And, and I don't blame him. He's, he, Balzar is trying to, he's trying to enhance the, um, imaginative power of, of Christianity. He's trying to call to your attention just the imaginative greatness. And so he does the same thing with the, with the Trinity, where he, he argues, for example, that hell is a Trinitarian event because he, he says that the Trinitarian persons in their distinction are infinitely distant from each other. And the Father, the Father assembly sends forth the Son in begetting him in a way that is is like an abandonment like a, like um so the distance between the divine persons or Balthazar, the distance between the divine persons is infinite and so so that it's far it's infinitely greater than the distance distance between the most alienated sinner like satan and um and god himself in other words um so you have this trinitarian distance and that's why that's why hell is a trinitarian event in a certain sense in a surely a metaphorical sense now balzar what he's trying to do really though the bottom line is he's trying to make the trinity he's trying to remind you that the trinity is not just um begetting you know generation procession um you know word image love gift you know the, the trinity is not just um, subsistent relations. <laughs> the Trinity is something incredibly exciting, incredibly dynamic, you know, infinitely dynamic, infinitely active, infinitely personal, you know, and so the personal relations between the, the divine persons are far more personal than we can imagine, far more profound, far more wondrous than anything that human history has to offer, than anything that imagination can can think of. You see, so Paul's are trying to, he's trying to capture the intensity, the glory of the Trinity. And so he feels that he feels that the um, the medieval scholastic and therefore the Augustinian and, and patristic, um, including um, the including the church, all of the Greek church fathers, he feels that their way of approaching the Trinity sort of, um, in the end, sort of dulled it, dulled it down, so that we need sort of the mystical insights, the, the sense of um, sense of wonder, the sense of amazement. When you think about the Trinity, there's, there's nothing more exciting than the, than the Trinity, you know? And so Balzar, he works to bring that out. But unfortunately, though, um, as theologically, though, he, he, in my view, he goes too far. And if, if he wanted to speak that way, he needed to be very clear that it's very, very clear that he's just speaking in metaphor because he brings in some very serious problems um, along, with, along with the excitement. Well, anyway, um, my view here 
I want to be clear. My view is that that every theology has a certain set of problems with it. You know, I, I don't I don't subscribe to the notion that um, that kind of you have sort of a perfect theology, and then uh, that you have some sort of theologian, whether it's Irenaeus or whoever, might, Augustine, who's sort of perfect on everything, and then the rest of the ones are sort of measured. I, I don't subscribe to that. I think that all theologians have some some weaknesses. So I think I do think Balzar on um, his theology has some weaknesses, but. In, in saying that, I want to emphasize that I'm being a Balthazarian, because Balthazar, he's the first to criticize. He, he criticizes all the great theologians as, as deficient. So he criticizes Irenaeus in a very sharp way, and Irenaeus is one of his favorite theologians. And, and he criticizes um, Augustine in a profoundly sharp way, uh, too sharp, too sharp. Uh, but Augustine over like predestination issues, that type of thing. But um, he criticizes him. He criticizes all the great theologians. Every one of them that you could even think of, he criticizes. And so my point is that Balzar, he doesn't hesitate to, to identify other theologians as deficient. He too is deficient. <laughs> That'd be what I would want to add, <laughs> you know. I, I agree with him. But he also celebrates each of these great theologians. He celebrates them and he values them, and so they're part of they're part of the symphony. So I really, I like his image of um, truth as symphonic and his symphonic approach. Now there is one thing I would add though is that he's not very fair to the theologians um, between between say 1560 and 1950. He's not fair to those. It was part of the race or small movement, part of the time. You know, and these guys in seminary they read a lot of manuals they didn't like their teachers <laughs> honestly they didn't like their teachers and they they were kind of fed up and bored with the the theological textbooks but man you, you ought to read the theological textbooks that people write now it's just boring as all heck you know so theological textbooks are boring <laughs> that's kind of the problem and so and so they have they had the um anyway Balzar is it's just he's too negative about these often too negative about the theologians preceding him in the post-trinitine period you know, but oh well. He had a different. He wanted to open up space for a different approach, and I value what he has accomplished very much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's you had mentioned earlier how um, how much of a wide range of sources he draws from, right? Theological, philosophical, literary, but also in his in his writing, he's so prolific and. And, and wrote on such a vast array of topics and, and published just so many books. Um, so, and, and he's not systematic either is the thing about, he's, he's not a systematician. Um, so I guess it can be difficult to trace kind of what, what, are, what are his core themes throughout his whole corpus. So what would you say maybe are some of the unifying threads well, as I see it, the whole the whole thing is unified by um, the kind of the nation theme from Saint Ignatius Loyola, because um, Balzar is really a Jesuit, you know, um, the nation theme of self surrender. And so I I myself think that Balzar is a systematician. That he, of course, all these guys swear that they don't have a system, but I don't believe that not not even for a second, <laughs> because look. Um, 
if you're a theologian, you do have some sort of um, systematic way that you have in mind that you're going to um, undertake the task of theology. And Balazar is very much that kind of theologian. And so what he's doing is he's um, he's going to work. And so I, I argue that he's everything if, in Balazar, if you have a question, the answer is going to be self-surrender. So no matter what topic you're talking about, whether it's Eucharist or anything else, Eucharist, Trinity, Mary, uh, Jesus Christ, um, any topic else that you can think of, the answer is going to be self-surrender. But so when balls are, and I, by the way, I think that's a very profound answer because um, you, we don't need to think about, um, I mean, self-surrender is just simply the, the going out, the ecstasis you know, the um, instead of clinging to self, clinging to self, the, the pouring oneself out, the going out to other, the other, you see, the love for the goodness of the other. Um, it's just charity. It's a way of describing charity, the love for the goodness of the other, the pouring out, um, the kind of the liquefying of the self um, for the other, you know, um, and so every everything about Balzar really is about that. And, and that's an incredibly central Christian theme. You couldn't think of a more, more fundamental um, Christian theme. He's everything is rooted in Jesus Christ. Then, as he sees it, the the form, the form of Jesus Christ, the um, the manifestation, the revelation of who God is, the face of God, um, in the love that is Jesus, Jesus Christ, the embodied love. Anyway, so Balazar, though, what he wants to do, as I see it is he wants to respond. Um, I argue this in my in a book that I wrote, so I'm just giving a little preface. <laughs> but um, he wants to respond to the great German thinkers who are dominating the culture of our day. And so he's very concerned. He's very concerned that um, Catholic theology is not responding to the rise of modern culture, the Catholic theology under the form of neo-scholasticism or even scholasticism, you know, post-Tridentine, is not rising to the level of culture. And so Catholics um, are no longer seen as leading the intellectual life as being, um, you know, Catholic theologians are not even, not even almost like part of the intellectual life of the modern university or whatever, or the modern culture. Modern culture doesn't have that much of a place, um, you know, for, uh, Theological, Christian theological thinking. Remember, he's writing, he's thinking in, in um, you know, Europe, Europe of his day, uh, which was rapidly secularizing. So, so the three, the three key thinkers are um, Immanuel Kant. He thinks these are the three drivers of modernity, at least in Europe. And and the three drivers of modernity are Immanuel Kant, um, Hegel, and then the third one is Friedrich Nietzsche. And so, and so Balzar is not a Kantian, he's not a Nietzschean, and he's not a Hegelian. Now, he's closest to Hegel of all three, but he's a very strong critic of Hegel. But he's very much, um, but so what he's doing in the aesthetics is glory of the Lord. People, you have to kind of, you kind of have to read the, um, the neo-scholastic um, manuals in foundational theology or fundamental theology. I mean, fundamental theology. You read those manuals in fundamental theology, which are essentially apologetics or um, kind of like the act of faith and so on. 
And what you're going to realize is that Immanuel Kant is a key figure in those, um, in those, uh, the whole Catholic debates in Catholic fundamental theology in the early 20th century. Because you have guys like Pierre Rousselot writing things like the, the Eyes of Faith, or you have um, Maurice Blondel, um, you know, working through um, very important um, uh, things about apologetics about, and about fundamental theology. And so what's happening is, is that um, these great Catholic thinkers are using Kant, but going beyond Kant, as it were. Um, and when they, when they think about apologetics, about natural theology, about proofs of God's existence, about sort of about about reality they're they're going beyond Kant, and you have other guys like joseph marshall these are this is what's called transcendental thomism you know it is it's aquinas but it's um kant is a key figure now the thing is though the thing is that balzar is no kantian and he is not a transcendental thomist but he is influenced somewhat by Rousselot, just like Henri de labac is very influenced by Rousselot, and Rousselot being very influenced by kant you know, and Aquinas. So if you get all that in the background, if you get all that in the background, you're going to see that the aesthetics where he talks about the glory of the Lord, the manifestation, manifestation of the Lord is a very strong response to Kant. Now Kant, um, on a number of grounds, Kant has an aesthetics himself. Kant has a vision of the sublime, of the beautiful. Kant has a very, very complex and, and rich aesthetics, but Kant also has um, his whole thing about um, you know, about transcendental apperception and all sorts of things in terms of, of, of like what we can know, what we can know about God. It's all sorts of things that involve fundamental theology, you know. And so for Kant goes out in search of, of like the grounding of the whole, like um, the ground of all knowledge, the ground of all knowledge. He, he wants to say, what, what is the ground of all knowing? You know, and Kant searches for that in the in the in transcendental apperception. He searches for it in in the mind, in the consciousness. You know, in the in in the um, in one's own mind. You know, now Balzar also searches for the ground of all knowing, and he finds out. You know what it turns out to be? It turns out to be self-surrender. It turns out to be something Kant had not realized. It goes well. It goes influenced beyond Kant, really turns out to be the cross. It, the ground of all reality is the cross. The ground of all reality, now, you might say, well, that puts evil into the ground of all reality. Well, Balazar doesn't mean to do that at all. It just, what he's saying is the ground of all reality is um, ecstasis or, or pouring oneself out or charity or, or self-giving or self-pouring self out. Do, do, do you see that's what he's up to? The ground of all reality is this infinite pouring out of self, this infinite love for the other, this infinite, <laughs> you, you see? And so so everything, everything, what Balzar is showing in The Glory of the Lord, which is seven volumes, and he, he shows many things, and he talks about many topics. But, but the fundamental point that he's trying to say is that, is that the ground of all reality, if you're, if you're searching for the ground of all reality, that everything manifests, everything, everything manifests at the... At, if, if you dig into everything, what you're going to find is beauty. And what beauty is, is this self-surrender or this pouring out, this ecstasis. The, you know, it's called Christ, the form of beauty. Christ is the form of beauty. And, and he's in dialogue then with Kant in a very profound way, but um, in an undercurrent. 
you know, because Baldhar is no Kantian. In fact, um, he he opposes Kant to Goethe, and um, very much chooses Goethe, you know. But but the thing is that if you understand fundamental theology from that period, you've got to be engaged with Kant, and so Balzar is in his in his Glory of the Lord. Now, so that's his first his first seven volumes of the trilogy is his Glory of the Lord, and that's very it's very very important. And he, um, I call it a conscient critique of Kant, but sometimes people misunderstand. They say, "What do you mean conscient? What do you mean Balzar is not a conscient?" And and I answer to that, of course he's not a conscient. <laughs> He's just taking some elements from Kant, and he's showing how Catholic faith completely outdoes, and the sources of Catholic faith, including scripture, including the great, um, the great members of the symphony who understand beauty. Um, you know, he shows how they they completely um, outdo Kant, and so what he's showing then is that one of the pillars of modernity, Immanuel Kant, is instructive in a certain way. And so remember, you got to remember when Balthazar starts writing this book, you know where Immanuel Kant's books were kept in the library of a Catholic uh, library? They were kept in a, um, they were kept in like a cage in a, um, under lock and key. <laughs> do, do you understand that? They, they were kept like under lock and key, <laughs> at least in a lot of places, uh, you know, because they were on the index. <laughs> they were heretical. <laughs> They were dangerous, man. They were dangerous. And Balzar doesn't deny. He he agrees that they're not, you know, these are not, um, Kant has misunderstood the reality. Balzar knows that. But but he thinks, you know, if, if Catholics are going to become, you know, if the Catholic faith is going to truly engage, you know, with our time and, and truly be, um, be, be what it should be in our time, you're going to have to engage with Kant. And so, of course, many others agree with him. Or many Catholics of his time agreed with him. And but the main point is that Balthazar shows um, that if you follow Kant, and especially with Kant's search for the for what he called transcendental apperception, you're going to find. And also, then Kant's aesthetics, also Kant's, his aesthetics, which is very complex, as I mentioned. You're going to find that Christianity, that that in his view, the Catholic faith, but but the form of Jesus Christ, the form of Jesus Christ, um, turns out to be the very ground of all reality, which is what you expect because all things are created in the Word. That's all balls are saying, you know, is that the beauty of reality, at the ground of reality, is this incredible beauty. And what is that beauty? It's the beauty that reflects the Word. And what is the word? The word is the father's pouring himself out. The word is the being poured out. The word, you know, the being poured out in love, you know, um, the goodness of the other. You know, you might call it self-surrender or whatever else you, um, you know, Balzar certainly would, I think. Um, but any, anyway, so that's kind of the form of all things. That's the beauty of all things. And Balzar goes, he approaches this from a number of angles in that they want these amazing seven volumes. And and but by no means am I saying that um, like when Balzar gets into metaphysics, he's not he's not a conscient, you know. Like in the, he gets into meta, he has two volumes on metaphysics, the history of metaphysics in the in the glory of the Lord, and he's not a conscient, of course, you know, um, not at all. But that's not the point. The point is the whole the whole thing of the glory of the Lord really is aiming at at showing um, kind of the foundation of all things, and that foundation turns out to be Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, the, and so that's like, and so remember, Kant himself looks for that. 
Kant looks for it, but he looks for it in, in the mind, you know, and so on. Anyway, the, the thing is that, that then you have the next set, the next set of volumes is um, essentially working through salvation history, but um, and but but doing it also through the figures, the great figures of the um, of uh, the e economy of salvation, you know, the, such as well, of course, Jesus, you know, Mary, and, and then other figures. Balzar also he he thinks in terms of theater, so this is the set the you know the theodrama, you know. So now now we're turning to the theodrama, and and there in the theodrama it's quite clear that he's trying to benefit from certain elements of Hegel, because Hegel of course was tremendously interested in drama. So if you're if you're writing on drama, you know, then you're going to be you're working with Hegel because Hegel was a great German um, philosopher of drama, of theater, and so. Um, and Balzar, of course, Balzar, his doctorate was in Germanistics, so that probably inclined him to engage with Kant, Hegel, and um, Nietzsche. Anyway, so the point is that that um, Balzar, when he gets to the kind of like the center of the Christian story, which is like the cross, the Trinity, and, you know, when he's doing kind of the mission of the person, you know, you have like Jesus Christ and Mary and the other great figures, the other great figures um, in the Gospels. So Balzar is treating all this, and then he goes into eschatology and everything else. You know the whole the whole story, the whole the whole story from the Gospels of of um, of Christ coming, Christ's entrance in the world, Christ Christ teaching, Christ cross, you know Christ's resurrection and ascension, and Christ coming in glory. The uh, the the kind of this um, thing. So one of the things that of course worries that Balzar engages has to engage at that point would be um, what he calls the like the dramatic tension. You know, but it's like God going to win, you know, or is sin going to win? You know, and because um, right right now, if you look around our world and in Balzar's time, the Holocaust and all the other things. In our, our time, too, sadly, um, the world is a place of, of dreadful sin and dreadful chaos. You know, um, there is some order in the world, but it's sort of a miracle that there's any order. The, the sin and chaos are, are so powerful and so destructive and so there's a clash there's a real clash between um hol holiness and sin and and of course there's an internal clash an interior clash anyway so all this is very es eschatological balzar is a very eschatological thinker it just says you have to be if you're um post albert schweitzer <laughs> you know okay so so balzar he's thinking like this but he he works it out through um this engagement with with hegel and and he shows, he shows that Hegel has not thought deeply enough. Hegel has not thought deeply enough about um, Hegel's Hegel's whole version of history, you know, which is um, I won't, I won't, I'm not going to go into Hegel in, in this discussion because it's too dense. But Hegel's version of history um, is is almost everything is sort of plotted out, you know, and history. Um, you know, it's it's on kind of a trajectory. In other words, like Hegel knew what history was going to be. Hegel, Hegel was sort of the pinnacle of history. <laughs> you know, Hegel Hegel kind of the Hegelian system knows everything. The Hegelian system sort of knows everything, and has a place for everything. But Balzar points out that the Hegelian system doesn't really have a place, really, for um, in a serious way, for for the living God, 
you know, the transcendent God, the God who, um, who acts rather than sort of the God who develops, you know, but Balzar has critiques of Hegel, many critiques of Hegel. Um, Balzar has a strong critique of Hegel's um, understanding of the cross. The, the point of it is, though, is that what Balzar does, what he finds in Hegel, especially, is that Hegel, Hegel's, it's kind of when you read Hegel, it can seem, it can seem that Hegel's understanding of God and of the cross and of, of all these things is more somehow more exciting, somehow more filled with energy than is the than is kind of the scholastic treatment of the Trinity or even the um, Thomistic treatment of the cross. Okay, and so Balzar outdoes this. He outdoes it. So when you read the Theodrama and you get something so dramatic that you can hardly stand it, you know, it's incredibly dramatic. And um, there's much, much power to it. And he shows that, um, well, I, I already talked about some of this in, in my critique of Balzar, where I critique some of it, my view goes too far, but the main the main point is that um, that the theodrama is out narrating Hegel. It does a lot of other things as well, um, but it is he's out narrating Hegel. That's an important aspect. Anyway, um, uh, now you might say, well, what's the use of out narrating Hegel? Who is Hegel anyway? Well, look, you know, we gotta we gotta kind of step back here. You know, Hegel. We gotta realize that. Marx was a Hegelian. Did, did Marx have an impact on history? <laughs> have you, you know, have you ever like read about the arc of history? You know, and um, Hegel is deeply present in our culture. Hegel is, and he was even more deeply present in Balzar's culture. But Hegel, Hegel is very, very deeply present in our culture, in part because um, Hegel has these offshoots. Marx was a Hegelian, and Marx is deeply present in our culture. But um, but there's also other offshoots um, coming forth from Hegel. So we, we we would we would sort of neglect Hegel at our peril. You know, um, our intellectual culture is still filled with with Hegel. Um, it might not call itself Hegel, you know, but it but it's related to Hegel. And so anyway, but then you have the third, and the third one is. Um, Nietzsche, and and, it, and if anyone wants to imagine that our culture is not profoundly Nietzschean, then they're they're crazy. <laughs> so so Nietzsche now now Nietzsche though is his own thing, and so the main thing is that for Nietzsche, truth is always the will to power. So truth is always radically contextual. Do, do you see what I mean? It's it's always sort of. Um, you know, radically contextual, and and it's based of, it's based upon um, getting something. You know, it's like if I make a claim of truth, if I claim to know something, I'm just trying to get something. You, you see, I'm trying to get some power, some power over you. I'm trying to get some power over other people. I'm trying to um, get something. And so this is a very very prevalent understanding of truth. It, it's behind identity politics and all sorts of things. I mean, in other words, it's it's very prevalent. So Balzar, I say in that in his theologic, now remember his theologic does a number of things, but I say that in his theologic, what Balzar is fundamentally doing though, 
is he is offering a Nietzschean critique of Nietzsche. But that but Balzar is not a Nietzschean. Uh, okay, but his critique though of Nietzsche goes along goes along um, lines that Nietzsche could recognize. And it does so because Balzar says that what is truth? What is it? Truth is the will to love. Truth is the will to love. So so for Balzar at the if you for Balzar, if you look at truth, ultimately, what is truth? Truth is self-surrender. That's the truth of things. The truth of things is self-surrender, just like the um the true drama. The true drama is the drama of self-surrender. You know, the self-surrender of the Trinity, the self-surrender of Christ, and the self-surrender of all those who are in Christ. You see, that's the real, the real history. The real history, the real drama of history is self-surrender. That's what the real, real history is. And um, it turns out that that the real, um, the real truth of things, you know, um, the lasting truth, the ultimate truth, and the truth of God, the truth that measures everything, is self-surrender. And so it's love, man. It's love. So love is the fundamental thing. And so Balzar, you know, in this way is like a Bonaventurian, but he's an he's a he's a Jesuit, you know, he's a nation, a nation. And so Balzar, for him, he's he is a voluntarist of a kind, you know, he emphasizes the will. And he emphasizes the good. You know, so you remember like what's the highest transcendental? Is the highest transcendental um being or is the highest transcendental the good? Well, Bonaventure says the highest, the highest name of God is the good, and and the quiet, yeah, we're not we're not talking about names like um like like Yahweh or something like the Tetragrammaton, but Balzar, you know, Bonaventure says the highest um name is the good, and Aquinas says the highest name is being, and so, and so you know there is this, and so Balzar follows in um, a Bonaventurian tradition or a Jesuit tradition, you know, and love is the key thing, you know, love, uh, you know, that's the heart of everything. You know, the, the pouring out of self for, for the other, the, the love of the good of the other, the obedience, obedience, in a sense. So one of your main goals in your book, The Achievement of Hansers von Balthasar, is to reconcile the divisions between Thomistic and I don't even know if I'm saying this right, but resourcement theologians um, kind of via von Balthasar's work. So how does how does Balthasar's trilogy in particular offer potentials for bridging those two camps? Well, the, the thing about um, my perspective is that I think... Um, See some of the some of the reviewers of my book um, misunderstood what I, what I was doing because they kind of said, "Hey, Balzar uses Aquinas," you know. So they would say things like, um, "You know, haven't had, don't you know that in Balzar's, you know, in his Metaphysics and the Glory of the Lord, Balzar uses Aquinas at a pivotal place and in volume." You know, whatever it is, volume volume um, at the end of volume four, or at the end of I think it's the end of volume four. Anyway, I, um, you know, the point is that Balzar uses Aquinas, and Balzar benefits from Aquinas. 
and they they say don't you know that you know because i didn't really put that in my book and so i i think they've missed the point <laughs> and of course i do know that and, and i'm i'm well versed in that but the point is this that balzarians and thomas are going to disagree that's just how it's going to be and and you got to remember that um in the Catholics have a lot of schools of theology, you know, so to be a Catholic, you don't have to, you agree upon the creed, you agree upon sort of these basic things, you know, the core um, definitive teachings of our faith, but, but you don't, you don't have to, you don't have to agree to, you agree about a lot of stuff, the moral life and all sorts of stuff, but you, you don't, you don't agree about how we're going to understand, um, for example, um, the cross, or there's different schools of thought about how we understand the incarnation, or different schools of thought about how we understand um, the Trinity, you know, or different schools of thought about how we understand the causality of the sacraments. So Catholics have always been dealing with a lot of, um, the Catholics have different schools of thought which are, are in tension with each other. Um, for example, about, about the Eucharist, um, that would be, you have different schools of thought there that are in tension. And so you're going to have arguments then. You're going to have arguments. And so the point of my book, though, was that we've had, we've had a, a situation um, after, after the Second Vatican Council, where at a certain point after the Second Vatican Council, it, it, appeared, it appeared that Thomas was going, Thomism, that it, um, the study of, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas as a, as a living, vibrant theological school, um, was going to disappear because um, neo, what they call neo-Thomism was completely obliterated, you know, by um, the council and and the leading figure of of, of at least Dominican neo-Thomism was a guy named Reginald Gergou Lagrange, and he was he was basically treated like if you if you're even to read his book, you know, you would be like tainted with a, you'd have like a scarlet letter uh, on your on your chest so the thing was that that it the basic idea after the council at least among some um figures was that from now on henceforth we'll have we'll have the razor small movement and that will be you know at least in the 1990s that was sort of led by baldazarians you know you would have the razor small movement and, but you wouldn't have any Thomas movement. You would have race or small movement, and then you would have sort of the Catholics who are more in line with Protestant liberalism. And those Catholics um, identified with Ron or with Carl, uh, with um, Skillbeaks and others. But you can see my point though, that um, at, a certain, at a certain stage, the idea was you would have Bolzar, you would have Comunio, but you would not have any Thomas ever again. Well, that, that didn't work. I mean, <laughs> that, that was a dumb idea anyway. You know, so, but the idea that, the idea that Thomas and Balazarians are going to agree with each other, that, that's not going to happen. We're dealing here with distinct theological schools. So the point of my book, though, was just a simple one, really, which is that um, right now, um, the Catholic, Catholic Church is facing a very strong revival of the um, the theological school associated with um, what I would consider to be Protestant liberalism, you know, a theological school um, of, of Karl Rahner, 
of Edward Skilbeek's and so on. And so if you look at most Catholic universities, the, the theology department or religious studies, you know, would be filled with, um, you know, kind of contextual theologians of different kinds, you know, liberation theologians of different kinds, um, whether, whether feminist or queer, queer theory or whatever. Um, and so essentially Rahner, Rahner is, is making a huge comeback. Um, and so, and on all levels of the church, um, and there's a number of reasons for that, you know, so I'm not going to, I don't need to get into reasons here, but what I was just, what I argue in my book though, is that, that theologians who, um, agree, you know, who really are committed to the creed and to the fundamental, um, teachings of Catholic tradition, you know, the teachings, um, that have been handed, handed on about the moral the sacramental life, you know, the basic things. Now, we might disagree about like how to understand the sacraments, but we agree, for example, that um, that, that the sacrament of the Eucharist, you know, really is um, the real presence of Jesus Christ, or really is the um, sharing in Christ's cross, His Paschal mystery. You know, or we agree about these fundamental things, but then we disagree about like how to account for that. You know, so my, my argument though was that um, theologians who uh, have this fundamental agreement need to learn how to get along and they need to do they need to learn how to get along fast because if they don't get along pretty soon um, they're going to find themselves completely outflanked by the very unified um, liberal um, in the classical religious liberal sense liberal catholics i'm talking about the classical religious liberalism um, there's a number of catholic thinkers who really are um, following the model of, catholic, of religious liberalism oftentimes they don't know they are because they don't read Protestants. <laughs> it's kind of a shame, man. But, uh, it's a shame, but a lot of the, they don't read 19th century Protestants. So they have no idea what, what religious liberalism is. They, they haven't even read, they don't know what Protestant religious liberal, what, what even what it might be. So they, they actually are religious liberals and um, what they, the changes they make to, they want to make to the Catholic faith will result in the very same thing that happened to within, within Protestant religious liberal communities. And what happened within Protestant religious liberal communities is that there was um, a massive loss of faith and that, that loss of faith, because, you know, look, who's going to, who's going to follow Jesus Christ, the crucified savior, if what it really means is that, is that we can be ethical people or something but it doesn't really have any fundamental eschatological import or, or deep, um, profound uh, there. The Jesus really didn't really change anything in a deep way or whatever. Okay. So, so what I was saying then is that Thomas and Balzarians must, um, take the opportunity to, um, agree not to condemn um, each other, but to, to work with each other, even where there are disagreements, and to try to appreciate what you know in certain ways um appreciate each other but by 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 saying appreciate each other i don't i didn't really mean um that now that the Thomas are going to like write a list of all the things they agree with balzar about you, you know <laughs> that, that's you know it's kind of like the idea that the balzarians are going to write a list of the seven things that they agree with Th thomas Aquinas about well balzarians usually by the way, Balzarians usually respect Thomas Aquinas as a philosopher. They often respect him as a philosopher, but usually they don't follow him as a theologian. Well, that's not going to please Thomas. 
governments are not going to handle it. You know, so we're not, my point is, we're not going to sit down and write lists of like the things that we agree about with Balzar, the Thomas, where Thomas grew with Balzar and where the Balzarans grew with Thomas. To me, that's a fruitless, it, it may be useful in some way, but, but ultimately it's fairly fruitless. And so but what I was saying more was that I was just suggesting at the end of my book, the achievement of Hans Richard Balzar, was that we can learn different divergent schools or different schools within Catholic theology can learn to respect each other's, the achievement of the other, even while disagreeing with them, um, even with some important elements. So you can still see that, um, you, hey, look, if, you're, if you follow Aquinas, um, as I generally do, um, you can still see that Bonaventure makes a major contribution. I mean, I'm trying to give you an example, or you can see if you follow um, the Dominican commentators, you can see that nonetheless, the Jesuits are great. The Jesuits are great thinkers and the Jesuits have a great tradition. You, you, see, you see, that's kind of what I'm saying. I'm saying that you respect the other tradition within the Catholica, you know, but um, that's my goal in my book. I argue that, that Balzar has made it, has offered a great achievement. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with it. It just means that as within the Catholica, you respect the diversity of schools. Um, you know, whereas for me, it's a quite a different matter um, when we're talking about religious liberalism. To me, religious liberalism is at odds very deeply with, with um, Catholicism. And so I would see um, the Catholic thinkers who advocate religious liberalism as um, undermining the very ground of, of, of Catholic faith. That's quite different. It's, uh, to me, to me, they undermine the creedal ground, the ground of scripture and tradition. They undermine the whole possibility of development of doctrine. They they under they undermine the truth of doctrine. You know, um, except for in some eschatological sense, they they undermine um, biblical morality. You know, and see, the, look, um, the difference between schools between Jesuits and Dominicans—that's not what's at stake. You know. So religious liberalism brings something totally different to the table. And I would suggest um, that although there are some good things in religious liberalism, and Vatican II picked up on some good things from religious liberalism. Let me name some examples. Um, some good things are like um, a Jewish-Christian dialogue rather than um, anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism or hatred of the Jews um, had plagued, had really plagued um, Christian orthodoxy, you know. So there are there are good things um, in religious liberalism. Vatican II picked up on a lot of them. Another thing would be, in my view, would be biblical scholarship. Um, religious liberalism points out that we we can't be afraid. We can't be afraid of um, of historical critical research. We can we can engage it at a certain level. We can't we can't be fundamentalists. You know, we, we can't be fundamentalists. I, I firmly believe this, that being a fundamentalist is not an option for um, for Catholicism because, you know, it's a, how can, how can you be um, committed to um, faith and reason if you, if you, if you basically cut reason off at, at the knees? I, I can't, I can't, you can have critiques of, 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 problems with, with historical criticism, but that's different from rejecting um, the study of Qumran and and, um, all, and the study of the intertestamental literature, or, you know, all the things that historical scholars do. So, so I think that there's plenty of things that can be learned from religious liberalism. I think that Vatican II learned a lot of those things. 
And I think that I think right now though we're dealing with a different situation where we're talking about the um, you know the undermining of the very the very deepest uh, foundations of the caliphate. So for me that would be like the neo-Ranarian or the Skilbeeksian uh, schools of thought. So I'm going to differentiate therefore between Catholic religious liberalism and then the kind of schools of thought where you have Thomism, Balazarianism. You see, so what I'm saying is, hey, Balazarians and Thomas, you know, we're not, we, we all agree, we're not religious liberals. We're, we're agreeing on the, on the fundamentals. Let's be friends. And, and so that's the, the argument. The argument is that and for me, for all um, for all thinkers, there's plenty of thinkers hopefully listening to this podcast who are not Catholic. But look, it's a lesson though. It's a lesson about schools of thought. So I believe I believe that you can have different schools of thought that um, that are deeply complementary and that, that that share fundamental values. And so you don't have to have an you don't have to have like a intra-confessional warfare within your your church just because um like one side is analytic and the other side you know is more uh scholastic or something you know or whatever so uh, my point is just that this is for anybody you it's a way of thinking of schools of, of thought schools of um theological thought within a, con a within a confession you know confession being you know I'm thinking here of church, the church. So that's what I'm pushing. I'm pushing the idea that that um, that those of us those of us who are not religious liberals um, need to get our acts together. Because by the way, it's very easy to to unite as religious liberals because what you're trying to do is tear something down. So uh, it's easy to be united and tearing something down. It's very difficult to be united when when you're um, when you're fighting over the particulars, you see, but you don't have to fight over particulars if you're going to tear it down. <laughs> you do see what I'm saying? It's like, you know, you're in perfect agreement. It's, it's like you may you may disagree with them. If, if I want to tear that building down, I might disagree. I might think the building is beautiful in some parts and, and that this, I might have all sorts of disagreement with my neighbor, but me and my neighbor, we agree. Let's tear that building down. You know, let's get down to the foundations. Let's tear it down. You know, get let's dig out the foundations. We agree about that, so we're gonna we're gonna have a very much a unity. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that the um, people who don't agree with that need to get their acts together and and get um, not fight each other and, and get some unity. At least that was my argument in the book. That was what I was saying in that final part. And I I think I think that receiving Balzar, that receiving him uh, in a proper way. Um, does require reminding ourselves about schools of thought. That's my main emphasis here, like schools of thought. So it doesn't have to be like all or nothing. And we don't have to like sit up and count the, t the, the 17 agreements we have with Balzar. And then we list all that are disagreements with Balzar. That's not how to receive Balzar. To receive him is recognize that he embodies a certain school of thought and that um, he has achievements within his coherent school, within his co coherent vision. And to sort of appreciate him, and then we we take what we want to take, um, but we appreciate appreciate that way of thinking, even if we don't share it. That's that's how you that's how you think about a, a school of thought that is not your own, but that is one that um, belongs to the Catholica. You know, it belongs to um, kind of like uh, the same the same confessional the same confessional domain in which one um, lives. 
anyway, this anyway, you can see what I'm getting at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could easily sit here. I mean, I could happily sit here and listen to you for two hours, but let's let's um, finish up with a couple of last questions, which I'm going to combine. Um, one being, you know, because von Balthasar was so prolific, I think beginners can have a really hard time knowing where to start um, in terms of reading him. So, what would you what would you say um, people new to to his writing? Um, where should they start? Uh, maybe what book or books by uh, Balthasar himself and what secondary sources, if any. And then second question is, what is your personal favorite book by von Balthasar and why? Okay, I'll be, I'll be on the second question, which my personal favorite is called In the Fullness of Faith. And In the Fullness of Faith um, is a very short book. It's a very short book that he wrote when he was, he wrote for one of his birthdays. You know, he just sort of whipped it off and, and he gave it as a birthday present to friends when he was like 75. And now, the value of it in the fullness of faith is, is um, in part because of its time period. Balzar was writing, it was written right after the council. And there was, the, the, the world was in chaos. Everyone was leaving the faith. All the, all the priests and, and religious in Germany were abandoning the faith. There was a rise of sort of these crazy, um, or the sort of traditionalists that were um, opposed to the council and um, in a deep way and rejecting the council. And so they were leaving the church. Uh, people were leaving the church in all directions. And, and so Balzar writes this amazing book called In the Fullness of Faith, a short book, which is about Catholicity. And his emphasis there, unfortunately, the translation can be a little bit um, misleading sometimes. Like he'll write, he'll write sentences that says, like, Jesus was a Catholic. And they put it in uppercase C. <laughs> so, look... Balzar, that may be so, that may be so, but Balzar was trying to get at a notion of Catholicity. In other words, Jesus had a Catholic fullness. The fullness of the fullness of everything is in Jesus Christ. The fullness of everything, the fullness um, of God, you know, and that's what to be Catholic, to be Catholic is to share, it's to participate in God's fullness, the fullness that he offers of himself. You know, God offering himself to us and Christ offering himself to us. So to share in that fullness, the fullness of Christ offering himself to us, to be the bride, you know, to really be the bride and, and share in the fullness of the, of the bridegroom, you know, in that in that um, Pauline sense, or, or to be the body of Christ and to share in the fullness of the head. You know, these are these are metaphors, but they're but they're obviously they're more than metaphors. But the point is of the book, it's about Catholicity. And and I do think, I mean, having read, I'm I'm writing an essay on this, but um I do think that having read um things by a number of, of Protestants, including my dear friend Jerry Walls, um, about Roman but not Catholic, and then also another dear friend, Kevin Van Hooser, they, they just have no idea no idea what catholics mean when they say catholicity you know it, they think it means being they think that being that they think that catholicity means rome what a disaster what what a shallow and pitiful reading of another person's faith catholicity means sharing in jesus christ our lord he's the catholic one do you see what I mean? 
And so now it is true that for Catholics, there is an ecclesia. We do have an ecclesiology that indicates that um, that Jesus really is enabling a, enabling the church to share in his fullness. Now, that's a dynamic sharing, though. You know, so it's not as though the Catholic Church claims now to have the perfect fullness. Catholicity is growing. You see that, in other words, that um, there's a growth of Catholicity. So you might say, um, you might say, well, how could that be? Well, like the church can be one, holy, and Catholic, without being um, one in the in the fullness that it will have one. Do, do, do you see? Do you see what I mean? Like the eschatological fullness of of its unity. If the church can be a unity, but um, but not not yet the eschatological fullness of its unity. I mean, the church can right now have all sorts of wounds to unity, you know, and and so on. Well, the same thing for Catholic, you know, that um, there's a certain dynamism there um, toward a, a ever-growing fullness, or, you know, that really is an eschatological um, dimension, you know, that the church will be fully Catholic in, um, at, the, at the consummation. Because, but the, the whole point is that Catholics, um, you, you know, agree, I think, with, with, great, with great Protestant thinkers that, um, that Catholicity is not about Rome. It's about Jesus. It's about sharing in the Trinity, because the Trinity is where the fullness is. Jesus is the fullness. You, you know, and so that's what Catholicity is. And so to me, that that book um, is extremely wonderful book because it sort of gives a it gives an argument for why the Catholic Church is Catholic. Lower C, lower C. It gives an argument for why the Catholic Church and. And you got to remember, it's the main audience is not intended to be Protestants, of course. The main audience is, it's intended to be a response to Ronarians, because Ronarians are busy throwing out a bunch of Catholic elements, you know. You know, I, I don't know if you know, but like Protestant, you know, like Protestant liberals would throw out this and that from Protestantism, like we don't need that anymore. Well, also the same for um, religious liberalism within Catholic world. Um, you would throw out a bunch of elements like, oh, well, that's outdated. <laughs> you know, check that, you know, and kind of like throwing out everything and a lot of us stuff. And it's like, oh, we don't need that anymore. You know, <laughs> you know, we, the church has, has grown beyond that. Balzar says, wait a second, <laughs> wait a second. Let's, let's look at each element one by one and ask how it relates to Catholicity, you know, to Jesus, to Jesus Christ, to sharing in Jesus Christ. And so it's a great book. It's a great book. I think if it's if it's rightly read, but um, it doesn't mean I have to agree 100% with everything he says. But um, it's a great book. And then then you ask another question like, what would you? How would you begin to read Balzar? And like, what secondary literature would you use? And my own my own view is that um, that a good way to begin to read Balzar is by reading um, his short books. That, that's my opinion. Um, if not that. Um, if not that, I would say that you should be in the Rebalzar by reading um reading the Glory of the Lord. Just reading volume one of the Glory of the Lord. You know, that that could be a good idea. Um but it depends on what level of reader you what level of um theological reader you are. Um you know, his his um trilogy is much more complicated and more difficult to read, I think. I mean, so you might you might start with like some like truth is symphonic. Or you might start with um, "Love Alone is Credible." That's a, that's a beautiful book. "Love Alone is Credible." Um, you might start with a book called "Convergences." These are these are little short books that he wrote. You know, 
uh, and these other little short books. There's there's a lot of them. Um, you might start with his book on prayer. That, that's possible. And anyway, these are things. And and then um, you know, but I mean, you notice I didn't talk about Adrian von Speyer, but I'll I'll throw in Adrian von Speyer at the end. I don't know if you want this. You'll want this in the published transcript, but. But Adrian, Adrian has a lot of short books herself that are very um, can be very enriching, and so I'm not scared of Adrian von Speyer, even though I disagree. I um, I think that her work is very metaphorical. It's very I think it's very much shaped by Balzar. So himself, I I think sometimes people say that Balzar was impacted by Adrian. I actually believe it's the other way around that Adrian was impacted by Balzar. <laughs> And of course, Balzar wrote out wrote out everything that she wrote down. She didn't write anything. Balzar wrote it down, <laughs> so from from transcripts or whatever. But but the thing, the point is that um, you know that there's some good stuff in Adrian too. But um, in the short books, I do think that on on matters that some matters she says stuff that I can't agree with at all. Um, but but again, the principle of all or nothing is is not how to read Balzar. Sometimes people read Balzar expecting like all or nothing, or they expect to read him like he's Thomas Aquinas. Well, of course not. You can't read that. It's you. You. You have to understand you're coming at uh, someone from a distinct theological school, um, one which is really his own. He's very creative. But but if you if you're coming if you're coming to Balzar having read Karl Barth or having read Sergius Bulgakov, you will understand Balzar. In other words, like Balzar is a school of thought that is shaped by shaped by a certain reception of Hegel. And a certain reception of like Schelling and some others, and and so Balzar um, is going to have a, a lot of agreements with people who have any sort of um, German background like that. So certainly Bart, um, certainly Sergius Bulgakov, um, and because there you have to remember that the Russian the Russians were reading a ton of um, a ton of these German philosophers, Hegel being prominent, Schelling, and some and some others. Anyway, anyway, so these are these are my basic thoughts. Uh, about Balzar, how to how to read him. Awesome, thank you. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Um, I just want to say thank you again for um, taking the time to chat with me. Thanks for listening to The Theology Mill, brought to you by Whitfinstock Publishers. If you liked what you heard and would like to hear more, you can subscribe to our show, where we have lots more content coming your way. I'm your host, Zach Mickle, signing off on this episode of The Theology Mill. We hope to see you again to share a drink and talk all things theology. Until then, dear friends, God bless, and see you soon.